Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. The crisis at Surrey Memorial Hospital continues. And how long is it going to go on before there is real action and seen to be real action? We're getting numerous groups of doctors right across the board from different areas and medical health uh, professionals calling for some sort of action to rectify what has become, in their collective view, a dangerous situation due to a lack of resources. Well, here's what Surrey, uh, Surrey Memorial's Medical Staff Association president had to say about those resources which means that it is closed to new patients coming in because it acknowledges and therefore communicates to the public that we do not have the resources to provide you care. Does that happen often? It doesn't. You know, we as physicians take that very seriously and we don't make it lightly. Um, This is the first time we have called for it. Okay, so what are the challenges we've heard from Adrian Dix? They have to do with growth in Surrey. We know Surrey is growing more than most communities, not only in the province, but in the country. We're coming out of a pandemic, but that's shared right across the country. And then there is this global demand for healthcare professionals. And that, of course, is global, meaning it's shared right across the country and around the world. Well, so what do we do about the solutions over at Surrey Memorial? Let's bring in Trevor Helford, he is BC United's MLA for Surrey White Rock. Good morning, Trevor. Good morning, Bruce. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, This situation at Surrey Memorial is certainly not a good situation. It's not just one group of doctors. It's many groups of doctors and healthcare professionals. What needs to be done? How bad is it? Well, I think by your intro there and, and what we've heard from the doctors, it's it's beyond bad. Uh, it's beyond a crisis. It's beyond a tipping point. Um, when we're talking about diversion, when we're talking about shutting down an emergency room in one of the largest hospitals uh, in British Columbia, I, I think that people realize um, that we are in really, really bad shape out here. And, you know, I know that I've heard the comments from Minister Dix, um, and, you know, Minister Dix has been the NDP's health minister from day one, seven years. And he has known since day one that Surrey is a growing community. That did not sneak up on us. We've known that for the past decade. Um, We've all experienced the hardships of the pandemic. Um, We know the global demand for healthcare professionals. All of that stuff, um, two of those three things are stuff that the entire nation, if not North America, are dealing with. Um, the fact is, is that Surrey has not been able to keep up when it comes to getting health, adequate healthcare resources. And we are now paying the price for that. And in some cases, it's, it's, it's literally costing lives. And I think that you were seeing letter after letter from healthcare professionals. These are not politicians. These are not uh, you know, these are people that are on the front lines every single day um, trying to fight for a better system of quality of care. But we do know that Adrian Dix is meeting today with some of the senior leadership at Fraser Health. What do you think is going on in those talks? I, I have no idea. Uh, I, I've, you know, all we're hearing is talks. Uh, all we're hearing is, uh, you know, the minister getting in front of a microphone or a camera and and reflecting on, uh, you know, the work that he's done over the last seven years. But when you look at it right now, when you go to Surrey Memorial Hospital 
And when you have patients that are in some cases, and this is coming from doctors, in some cases waiting 72 hours, three days to get care, you're waiting 72 hours. What does that say about the current state of healthcare at Surrey Memorial Hospital? Well, how so do we get talking to, how to figure that out? Exactly. How did we get to this situation? Some people are pointing out that Vancouver, with a close to the population, Surrey's got about half a million people now. But uh, when you take a look at Vancouver, it's got three emergency rooms. Surrey mm-hmm. has one, and it's not a regional trauma center. That's RCH. How did we get yeah. here? Well, I think by lack of planning. And, you know, when you when you look at it, and again, is in, in, in about a decade, Surrey is going to eclipse uh, Vancouver in terms of population. And it is a growing, growing district, and we all know that. Um, but the fact is, is that we have not kept pace when it comes to our health care services out here. Um, and that is absolutely unforgivable. And when you've seen it, it's not just what we're seeing at Surrey Memorial. We're seeing these challenges at Langley. We're seeing these challenges at Peace Arch. Um, we're seeing them at Eagle Ridge. They're, they're systemic. So it's not just Surrey Memorial, um, even though that seems to be the epicenter of, of the crisis right now. You named uh, three hospitals, all of them within Fraser Health. Is this a Fraser Health problem or is it a BC problem? It's a Minister Dick's problem. It's a Premier Eby problem. At the end of the day, there are two people responsible for health care in British Columbia and the buck stops with them. That is Premier Eby and that is Minister of Health Adrian Dix. Those are the two that need to be held accountable for the crisis that we're in in Surrey right now. Full stop. If I was Minister Dix, I would say, and he has said this, but you realize, Trevor, that we have a new hospital that's coming online in Cloverdale. We have more training programs for medical health uh, professionals, and we have more incentives for people who want to come and work in B.C. Those are in place and taking place right now. We also had a pandemic that nobody would have uh, ever hoped for or wanted. So get real, Trevor. Okay. Well, sure. Let me let me unpack some of that stuff for a second. Okay. So the new hospital that uh, the minister likes to frequently talk about uh, in Surrey, um, that new hospital is not going to have an intensive care unit. Okay. So if there's a serious injury or a, during the emergency stay, that person is going to be sent to another hospital because that hospital will not have enough uh, adequate care to take care of them if they need intensive care. That hospital will not have a maternity ward. So, again, we're talking about the fastest growing municipality um, where, you know, we are already stretched to our limits at our maternity ward at Surrey Memorial, our maternity ward at Peace Arch Hospital at Langley. And this hospital will not have a maternity ward. So they are building something that is not going to be adequately, uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, preparing for the future, how can we build something and not have those two components? How can we not have an intensive care unit? How can we not have a maternity ward? That, to me, makes zero sense. Um, when we talk about training, I, that's, that's something we need to be doing what we've been calling for. The SFU Medical School has been delayed by this government for over two years. So now, instead of getting doctors graduated uh, when it was announced, we've delayed that two to four years. And that's under this government. So it, it's great to stand in front of a podium and make these announcements, but when you really peel it back, um, I think British Columbians continue to be, you know, overpromised and underdelivered when it comes to healthcare by Premier E.B. and Adrian Dick. Mike Smith is off today. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Mike.
And, well, we learned this week that Jenny Kwan has revealed that CSIS has been targeting her for years, apparently. She's just been informed that in the last few weeks. And uh, this as there is ongoing concern about foreign interference, specifically from China, in Canada's political system. And she has said that she has been in, told about this uh, on Friday, had a chance to meet with, uh, with members on Friday about this. And uh, she joins us now. Jenny Kwan, thanks so much, Vancouver East NDP MP. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, very frightening situation, or is this something you expected? Well, I have to say foreign interference is definitely happening here in Canada. Uh, in this instance, for me particularly, uh, it is with the Chinese Communist Party. But of course, we know that foreign interference is occurring with other countries as well. For example, Russia, which, by the way, have also been sanctioned by Russia. Um, and uh, other countries, Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, I can go on with the list. So, uh, But in this instance, um, you know, with the news that is coming out in drips and drabs about what's happening with foreign interference, especially as it relates to China, Um, I suspected that perhaps I might be targeted. But of course, uh, I have now been informed by CSIS last Friday that I am uh, subject to foreign interference and that I'll continue to be a target of foreign interference by the Chinese uh, government. So it is concerning, to be sure. Uh, But that said, coming out of this briefing, what is clear to me is that the fight for people whose human rights are being violated, who are being silenced and even threatened, that it is more important than ever that uh, we do not give in. So I will not be silenced. I will not be uh, deterred. I will not be intimidated. And I will continue to, to do this important work and stand with the people whose human rights are being undermined. If you say you will not be silenced, you will not be intimidated, that's a pretty bold statement right now, given everything that we know. And your work has been a work of fighting for human rights for years, especially with uh, some of the files linked to China. How can you say that knowing that your security may be in jeopardy? Or do you think your personal security is in jeopardy? What do, what proof do you have that you're at risk? Well, um The situation with um, particularly, I think, family members, people who may have family members in Hong Kong or in China, um, are especially vulnerable, excuse me, in that regard. Uh, And luckily for me, I don't have family members in Hong Kong or in China. Uh, And so so that's uh, one thing. Uh, You know, the interference can come in many formats. Uh, And so um, I'm not at liberty to talk about how I'm being targeted uh, more specifically uh, or, uh, you know, what uh, is is being done. But suffice to say, um, for the work that we do, uh, myself as a parliamentarian and uh, the work that I have been doing for decades now, being outspoken against human rights violations, uh, you know, the situation with what's going on with Hong Kong, the erosion of basic law in Hong Kong, the imposition of the national security law, um, the genocide of the Uyghurs, uh, and so on. You know, uh, we cannot be silenced to speak out against these human rights atrocities. And so I will be vigilant um, to uh, of attempts of foreign influence actors 
working to coerce, to co-opt, to reorient, to neutralize, or even to try to silence our voices. I'll be very alert to that. But with that being said, the threat of foreign interference will not deter me from fighting for those who don't enjoy basic human rights. Those, for example, who are in Hong Kong and China, they don't have a voice because they will be persecuted, uh, and we're seeing that unfold. Uh, And those of us who do have a voice here in Canada, our basic freedoms, our charter rights, our right to free speech, our right to peaceful assembly, our right to our beliefs, to our religion, we have these rights and we must exercise those rights, not just to protect our freedoms and our democracy and our basic rights and our human rights here in Canada, but also for those who are in other countries whose human rights are uh, undermined and where those human rights don't exist for them. It's incumbent for us to do that because we're all connected as part of the human race and we must do this work. Okay, Vancouver East NDP MP Jenny Kwan. Now you have had these discussions on Friday with CSIS officials You can't get into the details, understandably, or all the details, but I will push you on a few different parts of this. And one of them is, what sort of precautions are you now taking? Are you doing anything different? If you say you're going to continue to push for human rights in areas like Hong Kong, what are you going to do about possibly protecting yourself from interference? Well, Or intimidation? uh, Right. I think one of the... um, goals, uh, of course, is to um, alter my point of view and have me not sort of speak out on these issues. Um, And I'm not going to do that. So just this last couple of weekends, uh, for example, I attended a democracy walk uh, organized by uh, a group called VSSDM and uh, DS. And they, um, we were walking and marching in the streets, and we spoke out about the human rights atrocities that are taking place uh, in Hong Kong and in China. And we will continue to do this work. The weekend before that, I attended a photo exhibition where activists uh, for Hong Kong from Vancouver put together a photo ex- exhibition to uh, remember and to commemorate and to raise awareness around the violations of, uh, uh, of basic human rights and the basic law for people of Hong Kong, where students who were engaged in peaceful protests were violently attacked, uh, where um, books are now being banned, where the press... Uh, the independent press, Apple Daily, has been shut down. The owner of Apple Daily uh, is now in jail. I can cite many, many examples. Those individuals don't have a voice. So, you know, I'm going to exercise my right here in Canada, my right to freedom of speech, our charter rights to to speak out, to raise these issues. You know, June 4th is coming up and is the 34th anniversary of Tiananmen Square uh, massacre, where students, oh my goodness, thousands of students were at, under attack. And the ones, the families who's lost their children, the loved ones, they can even grieve for them in the public. If you light a candle, 
in the public in commemoration of them, that is not allowed. This is what's going on, and we have to speak up. Uh, and I am going to light a candle uh, on, uh, on, on June 4th to commemorate the students, and I am going to continue to speak out to raise these issues, to raise the awareness, and to fight against human rights violations anywhere in the globe. Okay, as you light a candle on June 4th and continue to speak out, our federal government has appointed David Johnston as the point person on the file. Uh, do you have confidence in, uh, in what he's doing, uh, given his ties to the family of uh, Justin Trudeau? Well, um, the truth of the matter is, Mr. David Johnston, do not have the confidence of all members of the parliament. Uh, just yesterday, the NDP put forward a motion calling for him to step down, calling for the government to immediately and urgently launch an independent public inquiry. We're also uh, saying that we need the committee uh, in, in, in the House of Commons to start working to put together uh, a commissioner that all official parties accept uh, and recognize and can have faith and confidence in, and to put together a, um, um, a terms of reference, a mandate, if you, if you will, for the commissioner. So we're going to push ahead to say that this work, uh, it, it needs to be done, and we're going to continue to pressure the government to do the right thing. Mr. David Johnston, to be very clear, do not enjoy the confidence and trust of all parliamentarians to restore the faith of Canadians in how the Canadian government is dealing with the foreign interference issue, whether it's China or Russia or any other country. We need to have an independent public inquiry. And that's what your leader, Jagmeet Singh, is calling for, is uh, a public inquiry. In fact, this is what he had to say yesterday. I respect the work of Mr. Johnson, but I disagree strongly with his, with his finding public inquiry is necessary to restore the confidence in our electoral system, to make sure we're showing Canadians that this is something we take seriously, and for people to have an opportunity to see and hear clearly about what's happening and what's being done to, to tackle foreign interference. Confidence in the electoral system, what does that mean to you, Jenny Kwan? Well, what we do know, some information has come out, uh, is that the foreign interference is attempting to undermine our democracy into our electoral system. What we do know is that this foreign interference occurred uh, before 2019, and especially in around uh, the election period, but it's not to say it's only during that uh, election period. Uh, and so our democracy is being undermined, and we have to take it seriously. We have to tackle it, uh, and we have to have accountability, uh, and then also to let Canadians know, and especially for everyday Canadians who are being targeted. It's not just me and members of parliaments who are being targeted. Everyday Canadians are being targeted as well, and this situation has already had a bit of a chilling effect for everyday Canadians. I know of people who did not come to the rallies uh, that I attended, for example, who are not comfortable in speaking up and speaking out who wore masks so that they can hide their identity. And so, so this cannot be accepted, and we have to fight it. And so the only way forward and the only path forward is to have that public inquiry by, by a 
commissioner that is supported by all official parties. And moving forward in that way, I believe that we can start to restore confidence in the hearts and minds of Canadians. And then through the commission's work, hopefully the inquiries work, that they will identify the uh, action that we need to take as a country to tackle foreign interference. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. And you know, as Vancouver and our province continue to grapple with an unrelenting and deadly overdose crisis, harm reduction measures are key. And here's one staff report from the City of Vancouver that recommends a bit of a different approach in making sure harm reduction works. Vancouver's mayor and council may soon cast aside a long-standing ban on indoor smoking to allow a two-year pilot of safe indoor inhalation, indoor smoking, those spaces at some supervised consumption sites. Why is this important? What's it going to mean for harm reduction? Well, let's bring in the Executive Director of Overdose Prevention or the Overdose Prevention Society, Sarah Blythe. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us. No problem. No problem. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about the idea here. And it sounds like something that's uh, kind of simple, but it really is important, isn't it? Yeah, it it really is important um, to get people off the street into a place where they can connect with healthcare professionals, um, that they can help, you know, people smoke. The majority of people who use drugs smoke now and they have the same or more amount of overdoses um, than injecting. Um, it's important for them to get the health care that they need and connect to, to um, you know, connect to a space where they can get into detox, they can uh, get into housing, um, they can get onto a safe supply of something that's not going to kill them and, uh, you know, kind of get them from being out in the streets to into a place where they can get the help they need. My understanding is there are some outdoor spaces where this can happen, but most of it is indoors, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, there are there is one outdoor space, or actually there's a few now. Um, but yeah, having an indoor space uh, that's dedicated to this with health professionals is really a great step forward. Um, we do need more space, you know, more inhalation spaces uh, than this. This is it's a small step forward. Uh, with only a few booths, I think six booths. Um, we need obviously more places for people, and it, it keeps people safe. Uh, overdoses, a person can die within minutes, and uh, you know if you don't, if they're in an alley alone and they have an overdose, um, you know if they if they don't, you know if you don't get to them right away, it can cause damage, brain damage, or they can die. So it's really important to help people within minutes, and having people in a an environment like this where they have health professionals that can help them and even suggest that they use a safe supply of something else that's not contaminated from the street, it really is a step forward. And even when they're ready to get into housing or get detox or any of those other services, they're able to connect to people. So it's good. It's a very good step forward. It's a two-year pilot project, but uh, and you mentioned that this is a step forward. Where did the concern come from? Was it observations from people working at the uh, safe consumption sites, or was it something else? 
uh, like concerned that there needs to be more sites or concern? that there needs to be a place for indoor smoking. Where did the uh, the idea oh, come from or the belief? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when Insight was um, developed uh, twenty years ago, they had a they had um, they had developed it in a way that it could have smoking inside, but um, it, just due to like work safe concerns and other things like that, it it just was something that people just didn't move forward with. And um, but really, it's really necessary tool in order to help people in the overdose crisis. Um, and, and sort of get beyond where we are um, by, you know, by saving people's lives. So, um, but yeah, over time, um, it has been developed uh, as as a, a model and different models have been put forward. Um, I've seen a model that was in a container uh, not a few years ago that, uh, uh, that I actually worked on to try and get um, an inhalation site, but there's always been obstacles. So this is really good to see that, we're finally getting to a point where um, the obstacles are coming down and we can actually really help people that are smoking. I, you really don't want people to go from smoking to injecting so that they can be in an overdose prevention site. So this is really a good, but we really do need to expand it. It really, um, you know, it's it, it's a good step forward and, and really it kind of paves the way to the possibilities of doing inhalation sites, but it's definitely not enough, and we need more. Right. Sarah Blythe, I imagine word has gone out uh, that this is in the works. What are you hearing for reaction from those people who use the consumption sites? Well, they're obviously very thankful for this, um, that uh, there's a place to smoke indoors and that there are healthcare workers that they can connect with um, that can help. With, uh, you know, people come in and sometimes if they're, uh, you know, using drugs, they have infections and other other things going on. And, and having it, you know, having places with where there's medical professionals is really great so that people can kind of deal with some of the other issues they might be dealing with. Um, so people are happy. I'm hearing that people are happy about it. And healthcare providers that have had, you know, been meeting with people on the streets that have nowhere to go that have been upset that they can't do enough for people or um, happy about it as well. So it's, it definitely is a good step forward. The pilot project is uh, two years, as we've mentioned, uh, when does it go for a vote and decision here? Um, I'm not sure the exact day, to be honest, when it goes for a vote. Um, but, uh, but it's great that it's going for a vote, that's okay. for sure. And, and I'll find, and I, I'll, I'll certainly find out because I am definitely going to be speaking to it. So, and you'll um, of course uh, put it out on your Twitter account. That's how we'll do. I will. It. <laughs> I will. I will. I'll, I'll let people know. <laughs> Appreciate your time on this, and uh, thanks for uh, joining us to explain this pilot project uh, that's going ahead. Indoor smoking, Vancouver set to cast aside the ban for some supervised drug consumption sites. Sarah Blythe, thanks so much. Okay, take care. Bye. Well, here's a note for drivers and those who may be driving around Surrey and other places that may also take a look at this new idea. You see, the city of Surrey is looking for ways to make intersections a lot more safe for pedestrians, cyclists, and transit users. How will they do that in Surrey? Well, Surrey is thinking about 
Uh, well, removing right-hand turn slip lanes. Ooh, what's that? How does that work? Well, to answer that question and explain some of this, we bring in Surrey's Director of Design and Construction, Jason Colnett. Jason, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me this morning. Now, when we talk about uh, including removing right-hand turn slip lanes, that's one of the ideas here. What's the problem and what sort of design solution are we looking at? So at the city of Surrey, we pride ourselves in being uh, uh, making our decisions based on data. So we refer to it as data-driven decision-making. So um, we, you know, we're not uh, reactionary. We're not um, uh, completing projects based on, on impulse. We take a look at the data and assess what we can do to improve things, improve things. So uh, when it comes to uh, intersection safety, that's something that's uh, high on our uh, priority list. Um, every year, um, uh, uh, motorists, um, cyclists, pedestrians are killed and injured across the city, and that's something that we want to uh, want to reduce. One of the uh, things that we look at when we take a look at intersections um, is the the different turning movements. And uh, you're referring to this morning um, to the right-hand turn slip lanes. And uh, the slip lanes allow uh, the traffic to uh, make a right-hand turn without being affected by a vehicle uh, stopping, for example, at the light in front of uh, in front of them. They always have that lane to make the turn. Um, over the years, uh, that um, uh, type of um, intersection uh, setup has been well used. Um, uh, in many locations uh, around the world, um, and it really helps the little uh, island that's created. It's often referred to it as a pedestrian refuge island, but uh, typically um, in kind of transportation, uh, nomenclature, uh, it's uh, pork chop islands uh, uh, because of the shape. Yeah, so, right. uh, those pork chop islands um, allow the pedestrian to move partway across the road uh, before uh, pressing the um, uh, the button, and then it makes sure that there's a shorter crossing distance for them, which is safer. Uh, one of the things we look at now when we redesign intersections is uh, have these been set up in a safe manner. Uh, the older standards um, had the vehicles uh, able to approach the right-hand turn lanes at pretty high speeds, um, which is a risk to uh, pedestrians trying to cross to the uh, the Pork Chop Island, but it's also a risk to the vehicle itself. So again, uh, this isn't simply for uh, for the pedestrians. This is for the uh, for the vehicles and the uh, the the folks in the vehicles as well. Now, for um, as long as I can remember, I think uh, there's been one of these Pork Chop Islands at Fraser Highway in 64th which uh, allows you to kind of cross over a very short area of uh, crosswalk, stay there, and go over the longer one. Is that what we're talking about, those type of things? That's correct, yeah. Um, and again, it allows the, the vehicles to uh, make the turn without the traffic. You know, if there was a vehicle stop that was looking to go straight through, um, normally, uh, if it was a conventional curb return, uh, the vehicle wanted to turn uh, right behind it would also just have to wait for the light to change. But with the slip lane, it allows the vehicle to make that turn uh, because they've got a dedicated right-hand turn lane. Um, what we talk about now is smart channels, uh, smart channelization. So uh, simply ch by changing the angle of that pork chop island, we can help uh, reduce 
the speed of the vehicle as they approach. Um, it allows them to be approaching the pedestrians and the traffic at a more perpendicular angle. So they have better sight lines as a driver and for pedestrians approaching, they get a better sight line. Uh, so it's really a win-win situation. Um, and it's only in circumstances uh, when we're redesigning an intersection if uh, we can achieve those safety standards that uh, we consider removing the slip lane and replacing it with a conventional uh, uh, a conventional curb return. And again, that's looked at on a case-by-case basis. So uh, you may see um, at different intersections, uh, uh, King George and uh, 64th, um, two of the pork chop bonds were removed and two of them remained. Uh, we're currently doing work at 72nd and King George and three of the pork chop islands will be remaining and uh, one will be removed. So again, we look at this um, on a case-by-case basis and it's the data-driven decision-making. So have there been um, incidences in the area where have they occurred and how can we address this? There really isn't a downside here, is there? I mean, I'm a driver and a pedestrian. I've seen uh, near collision type things when I've been a pedestrian, uh, both as a driver uh, where I've had to slam on the brakes because I didn't see something and as a pedestrian crossing. So I'm wondering if there is a loser in this. People driving around, would they say, oh, it's just another one of those things that's really slamming drivers? Uh, no, I think it is uh, a, a, a win-win uh, for for everyone, for the uh, the vulnerable users, the the cyclists and the pedestrians. They end up with a crossing that is uh, is safer for them, uh, and then for the vehicles, they end up uh, with a, a crossing and and a right-hand turn, which is safer for them as well. They're less likely to get hit by um, a vehicle coming in the uh, from the side. Um, so it really does make it safer for everyone. Um, so it, again, it's something that we feel that this is, uh, uh, there's data there, you know, uh, studies from the Transportation Association of Canada, U.S. Federal Highway Administration, BC MO, uh, MOTI, uh, Ministry, Ministry of uh, Transportation and, and Infrastructure, um, and countless studies for cities across uh, Canada and within British Columbia as well. So you mentioned um, these countless studies. Uh, Jason, what are you hearing from colleagues in other cities, not just Surrey, but is this going to be a trend that we see maybe across a province or country? Yes, this is something that's been picking up um, the smart channelization um, uh, in the last uh, 10 years or so. Uh, we've really been seeing that starting to increase. Um, and again, typically this is instituted when you're going to upgrade an intersection. Uh, that's when it takes place. So uh, people look at um, the statistics. And, and within the city of Surrey, we have a fantastic uh, program called Vision Zero. And the vision is, is that we'll have no uh, no people killed on our roads uh, at some point. So we can take a look at the intersection. We can look at the data to see where uh, the intersections um, that have the highest risk are, and then we can address those um, uh, and kind of prioritize those and see where uh, we can get um, best bang for buck in terms of uh, safety. Interesting, and looking forward to seeing more of those as places like Surrey, of course, high growth area, but as more places adopt this. Uh, Jason, thanks so much. My pleasure. Have a great morning. Mike is off this morning. I'm Bruce Claggett in for him. Well, Daniel Smith and the United Conservative Party got a big win on Monday night. 
And yes, they did lose a few seats to the NDP, but by all accounts, this has got to be something that is a celebration for Danielle Smith continuing on as Premier and a bit of a rethink for the NDP in Alberta. But the question still remains, what does this mean for us here in British Columbia? Can we have, at times, a united voice, a voice that we need from the West when it comes to, say, pushing the federal government for more considerations, things that both benefit B.C. and Alberta? And what about those differences between our two provinces? Can they be resolved when you have two premiers of two very different political stripes? Well, let's talk about the first one. Danielle Smith has warned Justin Trudeau about the economy and jobs taking a hard push on this one. The Prime Minister is already ready to introduce a de facto production cap on our oil and gas sector that if implemented, if implemented, will result in tens of thousands of jobs lost. Well, there we go. A very Alberta and possibly Canadian-centric approach to uh, the oil and gas sector. And Danielle Smith making some very strong comments there. Well, let's bring in Stuart Prest, political scientist lecturer at SFU. Good morning, Stuart. Let's start with the obvious question. Uh, friends or foe when it comes to David Eby and Danielle Smith? Uh, it's a good question. I think it's really going to be context dependent. I think they can be friends of convenience when it makes sense to do so, say when they're asking for more money from the federal government for, for health care. But when it comes to other files, particularly environmental files, I think they're going to more often than not find themselves on opposite sides of the debate. So it's going to be a an issue by issue uh, relationship, I think. Well, let's start with these pro issues, the ones that maybe have some unity between two different premiers of two different political stripes, as I mentioned. When we're seeking things like a Western voice or Western considerations, what will they find agreement on in pushing for action from the federal government? Well, the uh, the example of the, the health care file is a, a pretty good one of the ways in which uh, premiers can find ways to to link arms and, and work with one another across ideological differences in pushing the federal government to come to uh, to the table and then bring additional funding for for health spending. We, we saw uh, uh, David Eby able to work with uh, uh, Daniel Smith and, and, and Doug Ford. And so on those kinds of files, whenever there is a a common cause where the provinces have a shared interest in really pushing the federal government to to do something a little bit different uh, differently and above all to to spend more money and to send it to the provinces way i think there's going to be a sound basis for agreement and we might see similar sorts of issues with regard to things like education spending for uh, support for for jobs training and and those sorts of files and and for funding for infrastructure for for municipal development uh, additional funding for housing all those kinds of issues where the provinces are are really up against it to try to keep up with the demands for a growing uh, country growing provinces but but I think there are only so many issues where we can find that, that kind of uh, common front. And that definitely is a difference when it comes to B.C. and, well, Alberta, uh, David Eby and Daniel Smith. Uh, one is going to have a very much a stick approach and uh, very adversarial with Justin Trudeau. And the other, David Eby, may be a little bit softer in an approach. Is that going to make a difference, do you think? 
Oh, certainly. I think uh, we have seen the the BC NDP uh, throughout their time in office, both under Mr. Horgan and now under Mr. Eby, we see that they are able to to work well with the BC Liberal, uh, sorry, the federal Liberal government, and 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 I think that's going to continue. And in some cases, that may even be to the advantage of of premiers who uh, to be able to have that kind of carrot and stick approach where there are premiers like Mr. Eby who can can work with the federal government to put together proposals while at the same time, we have uh, more relative hardliners like like Mitt Smith uh, there to to make it clear that the provinces are not simply going to to roll over for for the federal government and get out of the way. And so I think when again when the the interests are in, in line with one another, that the provinces are going to be able to to work together. But then there are going to be other issues where Mr. Eby is going to find himself in alignment, I think, with the federal government, and and uh, Ms. Smith will be very much on the opposite side. And here we're talking about things like caps for emissions just as we heard in that, that audio clip to, at the start of yeah. the, uh, the segment. And very much so when we talk about some of those challenges, are we looking at the environment being number one in kind of the tension between BC and Alberta now? I think so. There are some ways in which uh, on the, the natural resource file more broadly, Alberta and BC do have some shared interests. The, the, the BC NDP continued to provide some support for natural gas initiatives here and, and there there is the, the reality of the, the, the pipelines passing through the, the province already. So So there are some ways in which we've seen the the NDP either actively involved in the energy file or or acquiescing to it, but when it comes to uh, ramping up Canada's efforts to try to, to reduce its carbon footprint and really transition the economy towards that low carbon footing that everyone has uh, more or less agreed is necessary at some point in the future. And even the, the UCP in Alberta has has acknowledged that at some point we should get to a carbon neutral uh, footing. And I think in those kinds of on those kinds of issues, we're going to see the the, the BC NDP and Mr. Eby really continuing to push, finding ways to to move forward. And and uh, Alberta under uh, uh, Ms. Smith will just be nothing but trying to move as slowly as possible to try to protect those those lucrative oil patch jobs. Let's talk a little bit about David Eby's political fortunes coming up and what he may have read into, if there's anything that can be read into, the results in Alberta. Albertans are a different sort and their politics are very different. But can you read the room or see anything happening there if you are David Eby's top advisor saying, you know what, this is the mood right now and something to be aware of? I think if anything, they can take some solace from the the results where even in a place like Alberta, which, as you say, is a very different political culture from from B.C., we saw a coalition looking very much like the B.C. NDP do do. Um, quite well in in this election and and when they were the, the the Alberta NDP were able to win using that sort of centrist message that we that cautious left of center incrementalist message that we have associated with the BC NDP here using that kind of message we're going to do what we can but not move too fast too far they were able to to run the table in Edmonton and fight uh, the UCP to a draw in, in Calgary, which historically is very conservative. And so I think they can they can take some solace from that, that in urban areas, in areas where uh, people are, are uh, aware of the need for government support for things like infrastructure and housing and action on, on the environment, uh, th- those kinds of messages resonate. And we have 
uh, significantly more of those places in BC than than there is in Alberta. So I, I think they could look at this with some cautious optimism. Okay, Stuart Press, political scientist and lecturer over at SFU. Let's expand this out. Same sort of question, but from a federal lens. If you are with uh, Justin Trudeau's war room and taking a look at the result and giving advice here, would you say that this is something as a result that uh, you need to be worried about, or is it just Alberta? I think uh, the, the Liberals have to be a, a little concerned with this. There, too, they, they may be able to take some follows from the fact that the UCP really had to to uh, uh, sort of trim its sails in order to, to win this victory, and they really had to shy away from some of the more radical messaging that we heard from Ms. Smith in her leadership campaign. So this looked more like a, a, a typical Canadian party than we thought the UCP might actually look like under, under Ms. Smith, at least to this point. But now now they have this, this ample mandate and they are free to really push hard in, in some of those more radical directions, uh, uh, fighting for constitutional autonomy for Alberta and so on. And so I think there'd be a real concern that this is uh, evidence that that polarizing rhetoric that, that we have heard from right-of-center, more populist politicians like Ms. Smith and like Pierre Polyev can win elections in, in, in some jurisdictions in the country. And so I think there would be real concern about that and, and there would be uh, a necessity to try to find some ways to reach out to those, those reachable, those, uh, those urban voters that uh, were willing to vote for, for the NDP in Alberta and just try to uh, find them wherever they can across the country. And I think we're, uh, we're in for more polarized politics as a result, looking for that, uh, pick, just picking up every vote they can on, on their side of that divide. You mentioned uh, uh, polarized politics, but uh, what about that constitutional autonomy? Is that a, going to continue to be an issue, or at some point are we going to see a cap put on that one? Well, we've seen Alberta uh, move away from some of the more radical uh, claims or, or uh, initiatives on, on that front so far. But but with a, a new majority and four years to work with, you could see that Alberta may uh, look for some ways to, to retool their, their claims and, and try once again to, to find ways to, if not change the constitution at least win political uh make political hay out of that that issue trying to make ottawa out to be the villain and to try to make the case for more local government uh, something like an alberta firewall uh, those kinds of those kinds of claims to really try to emphasize that uh for whoever you are in 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 the province ottawa is the problem and and uh, the the local government is the solution and we can expect other politicians across canada to look at that playbook it's an old one in Canadian politics, but but this is the current version of it, and they may try to use it as well. We're certainly seeing it in, in Quebec as well. So I think there is uh, more of that style of rhetoric to come, and we're going to have to uh, monitor that issue going forward. Monitor indeed. Interesting four years ahead. Stuart Press, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.